Thanks for downloading the McKay interview. My guest today is Dr. Mukesh Kapila, United Nations Resident and Humanitarian Coordinator for Sudan from 2003 to 2004. He's well known for being the whistleblower on the United Nations' negligence over the genocide in Darfur, the first mass murder of the 21st century. We discuss why some men and women at the top of organizations that were created to do good sometimes choose to look the other way when great wrong is being carried out. We talk about the end of consensus building in terms of human suffering and humanitarian affairs. I ask why we should care about corruption inside a United Nations organization based in Geneva. And in closing, I put the question to Dr. Capilla, does the rapid development in new technological change give cause for optimism in helping indifferent or even frightened men and women find the means and courage to make the right humanitarian decisions and save lives? I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone. Our memories can be very short, especially when it comes to bad, unsettling, or even shameful news. We remember Serenitia and Rwanda, but many of our younger family members and friends might be hard-pressed to know about the 1950s and 1960s and be unaware of the past large-scale killings in Cambodia, Vietnam, the Rohingya, Myanmar, Indonesia, Latin America, China, the Middle East, and the Near East, go online and you'll see that the list is almost endless. The beastliness of man toward his fellow man does not distinguish, or at least distinguishes only loosely, between the colour of one's skin, the shape of one's head, the curliness of one's hair, language, or even religious confession. Differences, which can mean life or death to some, can be far more subtle, at least to the uninitiated and unfamiliar. Now today we're going to cast a light on one important and shameful act of genocide. And I'm aware that the word genocide has a particularly legalistic meaning. Mass killings and massacres. And I'm, getting, I'm going to do this with the help of a prominent, and as you'll come to understand over the next half an hour, especially courageous man who became a whistleblower on the United Nations over what is widely regarded as the most bloodthirsty and unforgivable mass murder of the early 21st century, namely Darfur. My guest is Dr. Mukash Kapila, who between 2003-2004 led the UN's largest country mission as resident and humanitarian coordinator for Sudan. Now, there's a lot to talk about, and I do not want to take up valuable time reciting my guest's matchless CV, which you can read on his website, by the way, but you begin to understand the breadth of his experience and the stature of his achievements as our conversation progresses. Welcome to the McKay interview, Dr. Capilla. Thanks for making time for me and our listeners, Mukesh, and for inviting us into your home. Thank you, Michael. I have spent uh, many a happy half hour listening to you and your guests, <laughs> uh, especially when driving. So thanks for letting me join. But if I, if I could blush, I would. <laughs> <laughs> if I could blush, I would. Mukesh, you were originally from India, though for many years you've been a UK citizen, educated from an early age in England, finishing up with degrees in medicine and public health from Oxford and from the London School of Tropical Medicine, respectively. And you are a published author, having written a number of books, including No Stranger to Kindness, and we'll talk about another publication in our conversation. And among the many accolades bestowed on you is the CBE, Commander 
of the most excellent order of the British Empire for international service. Mukesh, you work for the British government, the International Federation of the Red Cross, and the United Nations, where, in the case of the latter, you became a public figure over the scandal in Darfur. Please tell me and the listeners about the events that led up to you taking such a drastic and unprecedented step as to become a whistleblower, Mukesh. Well, the story actually starts uh, in the late 90s uh, when, as a British uh, government official, I was sent to uh, Rwanda. And uh, nothing, not even my worst nightmares, had prepared me for what I saw there. Uh, uh, I was in uh, Kigali uh, literally on the day after the the liberators had gone in, President Kagame and his troops had gone in. And uh, blood was still running down the walls of the churches. And uh, dogs were eating bodies on the streets. And piles of uh, bodies had uh, meant that the drains were not working. It was just utterly atrocious. And this uh, experience seared me. So 10 years later, I found myself as uh, head of the United Nations in uh, Sudan. And when I witnessed what was going on in uh, Darfur with my own eyes, having uh, heard the world say never again after Rwanda, it was very clear that I had to do something about it. So it's Rwanda that led me to Darfur, and it's it's really seeing these things with my own eyes that made me want to stand up uh, against the horrors that I witnessed in both places. And obviously becoming a whistleblower meant a huge decision you had to make. Uh, Just give us, I mean, I've read your, your book, and it's obviously a complex story but give us some indication of the these the various steps or hurdles might be a better word that were thrown up in your way that got to the point where you actually then basically the straw broke the camel's back and you blew the whistle well the biggest obstacle was myself i mean here i was at a very young age in fact at that time i was uh, the un's youngest uh, UN uh, coordinator. In well, how, the, how old were you then? I was in 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 around uh, less than fifty. I see. You know, yeah. and uh, it was uh, it was uh, the UN's biggest operation in the world, and uh, being a kind of ambitious uh, person, uh, I was imagining a glittering career ahead of me internationally, and then I go and see what's going on in Darfur. And my conscience and I wrestled with each other for about three or four months. And as I went in and out of Darfur and I witnessed what was going on, what was I could easily recognize the first genocide of the 21st century. So it was very, very clear that I would never be able to live with myself and never be able to stare in the mirror again unless I actually do something. So that was it was my own <laughs> my own ambition that was the biggest uh, obstacle. But once I'd overcome that, then the, it was uh, really the obstacle was my colleagues. Uh, it was my bosses at the UN headquarters in New York who told me to shut up and carry on doing my job. It were my colleagues in Khartoum who were extremely abusive. It was a government who uh, threatened me. Uh, including threats against my life. And uh, it was uh, those factors. It was a media uh, which pilloried me. And therefore, it required, I had to uh, really steel myself. But this would have been local media that pilloried you. I talked about yes. local media yeah. before I decided in the end yes, exactly. that, that uh, you know, I 
had a duty to stand up. And it, the trigger point was when a Darfuri woman came and gave me her personal testimony of what had happened to her, how she had been gang-raped in front of her husband and her, and her sons and the whole community. And I really felt that my career, my ambitions, my own family, my own safety was nothing as compared to the horror that was being inflicted on her. And then it was just a moment's uh, uh, flip, and uh, I decided that I had no duty but to speak out. Well, Mukesh, was it not Plato who said <clears throat> the price good men pay for indifference to public affairs is to be ruled by evil men? I've read your book about Daivor, Against the Tide of Evil, and I should mention to listeners that it's not an easy read. And it's clear to me that there were obviously some good men and women around you in your efforts to get to the, the truth out um, to those who had the power to do so. And you mentioned that already, but let me just press you a little bit more. Tell me more about why those efforts failed. Well, How does the bureaucracy work in the situation against doing right, doing the right thing? It is a nature of organizations that they are self-preserving. And the UN, which is the, uh, one of the biggest organizations on the planet, in the public or private sector, is naturally constructed to be self-preserving. Remember that an organization is composed of people, and there are all sorts of people uh, who work in organizations. And those people rely on the organization to give them advantage, and in return, they serve loyally the organization. And particularly when you work for organizations like the United Nations, which are founded on values about doing good, about serving humanity, the organization in the end comes to own you. And loyalty to the organization overtakes loyalty to the values that uh, actually drove you to work in these kinds of noble bodies in, in the first place. And you know, there, is, there are plenty of good people in the world and there are plenty of uh, goodness in the world. But what the world is uh, lacking is uh, courageous people. So as I saw for myself in the UN and other organizations I've worked in, it's not that these organizations don't have good, competent, decent people who want to do the right thing. But when it comes to the crunch, they often lack the courage to stand up for themselves. And that's why I had so many obstacles in the UN system. But let me, as a non-UN person, never had any experience of it, never worked in it, um, although I've lived in this part of the world Geneva for a long time, ask you a rather odd question. What is the United Nations, Mukesh? Throughout your book, you write about the UN as if it was one body, and you're highly critical of some of the upper echelons of leadership, right up to Kofi Annan. But the reason I put this, what may sound like this odd question to you, is that last year I had an illuminating conversation on this very program with a high-level UN Geneva administrator with long experience in New York and Geneva, who explained that more precise language is needed when talking about and criticizing the UN because of its structure. Most of us who observe the UN from afar just see it as one organization. But for the sake of clarity of your former position, please could you explain this structure and how it affected you for good or ill? Because I think the listeners would benefit from understanding well, the United Nations is a massive network of different types of organizations. Some are highly specialized. For example, the World Health Organization we all know about, the International Civil Aviation Organization, so that planes don't crash into each other. 
or the International Postal Union. They do yeah. all good stuff. The ITU. The ITU, ITU yeah. and, and uh, then there are humanitarian parts of the system, like UNICEF, the World Food Program, and uh, so on. Then there is a political secretariat of the UN headquartered in New York, which is uh, where the members of the world uh, get together in the General Assembly and the Security Council and uh, look at world affairs that threaten uh, peace and security. Then there is a development part of the system, the UN Development Program, the World Bank, which is part of the extended UN family, and and such like. So yes, the UN is a very diverse uh, uh, creature. However... I think in one sense the world is right. It is one organization because it, has, it is founded on the same values and aspirations. It is the manifestation and expression of a common yearning of humanity so that when one part of the UN does good or bad, it affects everyone else. So, so therefore, it's extremely important that we don't fragment the UN system and excuse the misbehavior of parts of it, uh, you know, because when one person or one organization misbehaves, the whole is tainted. Well, that's clear, because that's the misunderstanding that I said ordinary people, non-UN people get when they hear the UN, but then people inside the organization say, ah, yes, but that's not quite us. Yeah? Now, something else I wanted to ask you, but on a slightly different tack. Uh, in your book, you wrote worryingly that, uh, that in terms of civilian human suffering and humanitarian affairs, the era of consensus building has passed. What did you mean by that? And does that augur badly for current tragedies in the Ukraine, uh, in Yemen, in Myanmar, in Ethiopia, in Somalia? I mean, I, I've only mentioned a few, but what, what's your view on that? Well, unfortunately, what has happened since the end of the Cold War in particular that uh, the general rules and regulations as well as constraints that affected war and peace have gradually eroded. And one of the reasons for that is, of course, the nature of war has changed. So today, as we see in Ukraine, uh, war is a whole-of-society effort. Uh, Every single dimension and domain is involved, whether it is cyberspace, whether it is air, sea, or, or land whether it is um, in people's homes or in their uh, fields, uh, whether it is in their factories or whether it is uh, with tanks and bombs and bullets. So what that means is that when conflict has become a whole-of-society affair, and by the way, the same is true in the terrible, uh, atrocious uh, genocide unfolding in uh, Tigray in, in, in Ethiopia or uh, elsewhere, as you have mentioned, then the consensus breaks down as to what is legitimate and what is not legitimate. So when you can be a cyber warrior and when you can also be a warrior on, in a tank and when it's very difficult to know who to attack and who not to attack. So in a sense, in today's wars, we are all warriors and therefore everyone is game and therefore everyone is vulnerable and therefore we are moving into an age of unlimited brutality and no restrictions in terms of the horrors we can inflict upon each other. Obviously, it's bad. Uh, Obviously, uh, I'm not saying (laughs) anything other than to abhor it. But uh, we have to be realistic. And this is not an age for consensus. It's 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 an age for winning or losing. I see. Well... 
That's a sobering remark, uh, although it didn't start after the war. I mean, in the way it started before with the Second World War, where civilian populations were just massacred too, I guess. But my guest today is Dr. Mukesh Kapila, United Nations Resident and Humanitarian Coordinator for the Sudan, 2003 to 2004, and a whistleblower on the UN. Mukesh, returning to the subject of good men and good women, you've recently drawn public attention to corruption inside a UN organization based in Geneva, the Office for Projects Services. I think it's called UNOPS. What is that? What has happened? And why should non-UN people like the listeners to this program, like me, care? UNOPS, uh, which is the United Nations Office for Project Services, is one of the biggest UN system agencies, turnover of three, four billion dollars a year. It's uh, one of the biggest agencies that uh, you have never heard of. <laughs> but it does uh, quite a lot of the behind-the-scenes work uh, for other UN agencies and also for some governments in uh, basically providing logistical support, infrastructural support, and uh, uh, administrative and human resource uh, services around the world. Works in scores of countries. Um, now, and for, it's based in Copenhagen, but it has a big office here in Geneva. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of evidence has emerged in the last uh, few months, and this was brought to my attention by uh, friends inside UNOPS, which point to a massive fraud and corruption that enveloped the very top of the organization, the executive director of which uh, uh, has been, was forced to resign a few months ago on the back of, of this. And fundamentally, what they did was that they uh, overcharged their clients. So, for example, if they were asked to build a, a refugee camp somewhere or to lug um, uh, relief provisions somewhere, uh, they would charge three times the, the cost of doing it. And those massive profits they put into the bank, which then they used to bankroll highly dubious and corrupt uh, investments uh, through friends of the senior management of the organization. But that's an old trick, um, Mukesh. Does, isn't there an audit department in the United Nations that would um, uncover that? Uh, you would have thought so, wouldn't you? The problem has been that the audit departments within the UNOPS and the bigger audit department under the UN in New York, they've all uh, uh, been silenced or muzzled because they are occupied by people uh, uh, whose contractual deals mean that uh, they are themselves unable to speak up by their own senior management. So in the end, uh, my feeling is that it is people like uh, the Secretary General himself, Antonio Guterres at the moment, but this criticism could be applied previously as well, have actually not shown proper oversight and the governance of these organizations, which include the member states of which we are all citizens, uh, in uh, showing uh, uh, proper scrutiny of these bodies. And this is a betrayal of the poorest and most vulnerable people on the planet. And when the most sacred institutions on our planet, that is those of the United Nations system, themselves betray that trust that people have in them, I'm left speechless and incandescent with rage, thinking about the deep betrayal of humanity that they're responsible for. I can understand that, but is there now a criminal process against um, culpable people on this, or is it just left that people resign and then they, they turn the page? What happens? Well, 
the previous uh, evidence is that these people uh, quietly retire with their guilt-edged uh, uh, tax-free pensions, and that's the end of the matter. Uh, uh, the, there is a legal process, or should be, but we don't know. This is because the, of the lack of transparency in the UN Secretariat, which means that uh, even the board of the UNOPS, which is, by the way, meeting as we speak, uh, uh, is uh, uh, not being fully appraised of the legal processes going on. Meanwhile, at least $60 million, perhaps more, has gone astray. This is money given by donors for the benefit of the poorest uh, people uh, on the planet. Scarcely believable, Mukesh, but let's hope that right prevails on that particular cause. Look, I'd like to finish on two particular aspects of the important issues that you brought to public attention recently. Firstly, one which is particularly close to you. In one of your articles, I read that health should be a bridge for peace. Tell me more about how you think doctors and nurses can deal effectively with men with guns. Well... Let me start first by not being sentimental about uh, the medical profession, which I joined as my first uh, uh, career. We've got to remember that uh, doctors and healers have also committed some of the worst atrocities on the planet. Um, for example, you, we all know about Dr. Mengele and his uh, Nazi uh, crimes. And there is scarcely a dictator or despot in today's world that don't have their pet doctors to supervise physical and uh, psychological torture that is common all over the world. And you need the doctors to tell you how far to go and when to stop so that they can uh, recover and go back to torturing uh, again. So let me start off by saying that, and I'm outraged that someone in my profession should behave like that. Obviously, it's, it's wrong. Now, I think having said that, what I've seen in my career in countries like Afghanistan, uh, Sierra Leone, and countless other places is that uh, the healing uh, profession can provide a much-needed humanization of the conduct of the war. And what I've learned in, I think, 30 years of dealing with war and peace is that the prospects of peace depend on how the war is fought. The more brutal the war, the more uncompromising the, the way in which the war is waged, the longer it is and the lesser the chances of a sustainable finish to the war. But it begs the question, how? Just tell me what humanization means. Give me an example. So, for example, what that means is that if, for example, through the work of the medical and other healing uh, professions, and not just uh, doctors, we can, in a sense, even in the middle of the hottest conflicts, show that war has its limits, show that because of mutual self-interest necessarily, uh, it is possible to actually help people who are affected by the war, be they wounded soldiers or others affected indirectly by uh, war. For example, the outbreaks of disease that often follow in conflicts. So I've seen, for example, the Taliban going around with flasks of uh, polio vaccine uh, in their tanks uh, in the past. I have seen in, uh, in uh, Bosnia, when I was in the heat of the conflict in, 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 in Sarajevo, the surgeons from both sides collaborating, exchanging patients. From both sides? From both sides, from the Bosnian side and the Serbian side, actually exchanging uh, uh, patients because a more... more um, uh, a better surgeon was on one side and the patient needed that surgeon. So you went cross-line to send your patients there and the, other way, and the other way around. So we know that in the middle of all this, and ever since uh, uh, history began, 
the healing professions have had a sacred place in the way, uh, even in the middle of all these horrors. So my theory is that if we could uh, find an organized way of uh, doing this, then we may not stop wars and the horrors will not stop, but we might be able to provide greater humanity during, during active war. And by doing that, we might shorten wars and increase the chances of peace uh, subsequently. By the way, this is slightly controversial. It's not necessarily liked by uh, certain organizations because what it does is it also politicizes healthcare and medical care. And clearly, uh, we shouldn't do that because uh, in the end, if we do that, then uh, I think we're going to create more division. So it's a controversial area. I can imagine. I can imagine. Okay, so this is my last question. It's the second and last aspect um, that I wanted to put to you is the role of modern communication, new technology, and what do you refer to as borderless humanitarianism, borderless humanitarianism. In your 40-year career, you must have seen a lot of technological change. And I read somewhere recently, though they weren't your words, that the UN work culture is fear-based, which pushes the UN away from solving problems. My question is, does the rapid development in new technological change give you cause for optimism in helping indifferent, even frightened men and women find the means and courage to make the right humanitarian decisions and save lives? Or is my question just too facile? Uh, no, your question is an excellent one. And the short answer is technology is uh, good. Uh, the long answer would be that uh, technology by itself is just an, a neutral thing and its tools are can be used for good or evil. You only look have to look at the railroad, which has been a boon to the world, and yet it's the same railroad that, uh, that transported uh, uh, the Jews in their millions to the, uh, into the Holocaust camps, right? Hmm. So the battle we are having now is the eternal battle between good and evil, except today's battle between good and evil is mediated by technology, where the uh, evil people are harnessing technology towards their ends, whether it's a means to make war or whether it is a means to repress people, including human rights abuses and, and, uh, uh, and such like, and the good people who are trying to keep one stage ahead, empowering them so that uh, nothing bad happens anywhere in the world without the rest of us uh, knowing about it, even if we are unable to do uh, much about it. So the veil of darkness which has hid evil for so many centuries is no longer possible nowadays. And that can only be a good thing. Now, my own uh, uh, feeling is that uh, in order to harness this technology to give people courage it requires not just the, the technical use of the technologies in a, in a, in a clever and uh, you know, innovative way. It requires a form of global solidarity so that people can find courage from each other by sharing their experiences from in different parts of the world. And, you know, I said earlier on, in the analog age, uh, where I had my career, quite a lot of the problems uh, have been that there, are many good, there were many good people, but there were not many courageous people. Well, the problem is still with us today, you see. However, what technology offers us is the ability to grow our courage by sharing our weaknesses across the spectrum. 
and thereby absorbing the courage of others in a way that we can collectively stand up to evil. One final, final question, and I think I know the answer, Mukesh, um, but I'll ask you anyway. Um, what's your sense of optimism or pessimism? How do you feel about the future? Oh, I am uh, extremely optimistic. Otherwise, if I was not optimistic, my 40 years of struggle would have been an extreme and utter waste. And that's not the way how I would like to end my life or indeed this uh, this. Uh, interview. Okay, thanks for answering all my questions with such clarity and such genuineness. I've really appreciated listening to you. My guest today is Dr. Mukesh Kapila, United Nations Resident and Humanitarian Coordinator for Sudan 2003 to 2004. Thanks once more, Mukesh. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for listening. Please share the show with those around you, and if you have any questions or feedback, write to me at contact at mckays.ch. I promise that I will reply to you.